Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. If you want to know more about where my guest on this week's show is in her life right now, look no further than the work of the great Nancy Myers. When I want to practice self-care, all right, when I want to get away from it all, I like to imagine I'm a protagonist in a Nancy Myers movie. Okay? <laughs> that is, it's about when I'm trying to feel good. If you've never seen a Nancy Myers joint like... Something's gotta give, it's complicated, the holiday, whenever Diane Keaton is feeling frisky, okay? <laughs> if you've never seen a Nancy Myers joint, I will break it down for you very simply, okay? First, imagine I'm a white woman. <laughs> I'm in my 50s, I'm in my 60s, I'm living in the hot flash, okay? I'm in a moment in time. I'm in a moment in time. My name is Margot with a T. <laughs> And I'm wearing taupe, I'm wearing cream, I'm wearing beige. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eggshell, ecru. And whatever I'm wearing is loose, but also fitted. That's my vibe. And at some point in the movie, I will be sitting with my best friend drinking a California white wine. And I'll say, his new wife is how old? And that's every Nancy Myers movie in a nutshell. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was comedian Naomi Ekperigan from her new special that is featured in season three of The Stand-Ups on Netflix. I have been just a huge fan of Naomi's comedy for a while now, but in this latest half hour, she is really at the top of her game. So I was thrilled that she agreed to come on the podcast to talk about this moment in her career when it really feels like she's about to blow up in a bigger way. In addition to being a fantastic stand-up comic, Naomi has spent the past several years writing for some of my favorite shows, including Broad City, Great News, and the final season of Search Party, which just premiered this past weekend on HBO Max. She is such a delight, and this was such a fun conversation, so let's get to it. Here's me with Naomi Ekperigan. I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. I uh, I absolutely loved your new half hour uh, on the standups. It's so so funny, um, and it was just I just loved seeing you in that lineup. Um, it's very very cool. It's a very cool thing. I feel like where they put out those six specials every. I don't. It's, I don't even know if it's every year, or every couple of years now, but um, it's always really good stuff. Um, so were you kind of excited to to be part of that? Absolutely. It was really exciting. I think especially at at this time when it was like. What is even going on in the world? Will I do stand up again? Yeah. How long will it take before I'm good again? Like, you know, all those things have been in my head. And it was actually, you know, it was a pretty truncated process. I got the the offer came May 25th of this year yeah. to tape it. August or last 5th. year now. Now we're uh, we're in 2022. Correct. Oh, my God. <laughs> Still writing 2021 on all my rapid tests. Yes. Um, <laughs> and it is... So basically, yeah, so it was May to then film it in August 5th. Oh, wow. So that really just yeah. gave me June and July. 
And that was coming off of, you know, for all of us, 15 months of not performing. Yeah. How did you deal with that? How did you, uh, how'd you prepare in that short amount of time? I ran the streets. I, you know, at that <laughs> point I was, you know, at that point I was vaxxed and that was part of that window of time in the spring. Yeah, that nice window. That window when anything was possible. So I just immediately, this moment it happened, I was like, because, uh, you know, I said yes and figured I would, and I was like, I'll figure it out. And I just emailed every comic, especially in LA, because, you know, even on, even in a pre-pandemic world, there's not, a, there aren't as many spots um, as I would have in New York, just because I, you know, started in New York and I'm from there and no more people. So I just had to email everybody and like sending out DMs and I'm like, can I do this? Can I do that? You know, and I just got up everywhere. I found a couple spots to work the full 30 minutes, but basically, I mean, I, honey, I was Blanche. I was depending on the kindness of strangers. Okay. Yeah. But, and, and also indifference like Nicole Byer, you know, who I know previous guests of the show, it was, so as I said, end of March, end of May. And then in June, Nicole was doing a weekend at the Irvine Improv with Amy Miller. And she just came and she was like, do you want to do, do you want to feature for me? She was like, I'll give you 30 minutes. And so it was that weekend of shows with Nicole that I figured out what the set yeah, was. That helped a lot. Yes. You know, and then once I knew what the set was, then the second month is just, you know, trying to memorize it. It's not as memorized as I would have liked it to be. It wasn't as tight. Yeah. I, I wanted I like to be able to like do a set in my sleep. Like I should be able to close my eyes and just say all the words with no one around. <laughs> And then I can do it on TV. As someone who has never done stand-up, that's that's something that comes to my mind often when watching specials, especially, you know, hours and how people memorize that much material and, you know, get all the transitions right from one thing to the next. And I mean, it must that must be a large part of it that I feel like people don't think about as much. I know. I mean, it really, and especially, you know, you would think since I wrote it, it wouldn't be hard to memorize. <laughs> yeah. And yet. And yet. <laughs> so it is a process. Um, but especially, yeah, I'm a real stickler about transitions. Mm, yeah. So it I so I tend to yeah like that that for me is almost once I figure out okay this is what I want to do I'm almost like okay now how do we make this feel cohesive mm-hmm. and feel like it's a set you know yeah. especially like at, when you hit 30 when you hit an hour how do you feel like you've seen like a performance like it's mm-hmm. really important to me to feel like you are seeing a show in some yeah. capacity. Well I think you're you're special definitely feels like that it's it's to me watching it it's so polished it's so you know putting on a show and, um, <laughs> um, and i just love you know just even watching you uh you know walk the way you walk on stage and i think the first thing you say is this feels right um so i wanted to i wanted to know what were you feeling in that moment when you when you did tape it and walk on stage and and have that moment of, of starting yeah so that was and so you know it was there were two we got two shots mm-hmm. yeah seven o'clock ten o'clock so that was a seven o'clock show. And most of my set is from the seven o'clock show because it was like the audience was perfect. <laughs> and, I, and I was feeling their energy and just, I mean, it's funny because the seven o'clock was not the one where I really had many friends. If anything, I was nervous because that was the show my mom came to. Oh yeah. And 10 <laughs> o'clock was where I was having like more people like I was cool with. And so the seven o'clock, I, I, I didn't know what was going to happen. And I went up last of the three of us. It was, Mel- it was Dusty, Melissa, and then me for that early set. And so when I got up there, you know, I had been concerned. I was like, what if the audience is tired? You know, they've already sat through at that point an hour and 10 minutes, probably more. And so when I got up and I just said to myself, the thing I, I told myself was like, if I'm pr- just be present in my body, if I'm present, it'll all be fine. 
Is that hard for you to, to be present? Do you feel like, are you pretty good at that? It can be really hard, especially, especially in a taping context, because you are, it's like, I want to be present and I want to just like play to this audience, but everything around me is reminding me that this will live forever (laughs) and be seen by so many more people, hopefully. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. So I just really had to be like, just be comfortable, just like being your body. And so when I got that really warm welcome for the crowd, it was like, yeah, it was like, this feels right. I was like, okay, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to do this today. We are, y'all are on board. You seem like you're going to be fun. So let's go. That's how it felt. Um, From all of the comedians that I've talked to over the years, it seems like the Netflix exposure is a really big deal. I mean, talking about even just with these, you know, this, the stand-up series, you know, thinking about people like uh, Nate Bargatze, Nikki Glaser, I feel like it really helped launch their careers in a big way. And as you said, you know, it's seen by, this is potentially the thing that will be seen by more people than anything else that you've done. So how do you think about that? I mean, in terms of what you want to communicate about yourself and, and did you feel like it was really introducing yourself, even though you've been doing this for a long time? time now it really was that fine line I did have to think okay on one hand because that you know initially I was I was like okay are these jokes gonna play to people who don't live on the coast let alone in other countries and like are they gonna like me and like you know kind of how much do I need to step things out or explain them more for this version of the set than I would if I was just doing you know you know a bar show in New York or LA and then I just realized you just go down such a friggin (laughs) rabbit hole with that thinking it's like honey i don't know how to play to dubai we're just gonna have to hope yeah (laughs) so and but i did think i'm like you know because at this point i had done a half hour on comedy central late nights with seth myers two dope queens that to me my initial impulse is to just kind of continue it not to introduce myself but i thought how can i tell the story of who i am that is both accurate to where I am now while also inviting new people in. And that was a conscious thought. You know, um, I only said Jubu one time, but I felt it did have to be said. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay. And so <laughs> that was, yeah, stuff like that, right? Like I've been saying Jubu for friggin' years and I'm like, do I say it again? And then I was like, look, if you're brand new, you don't know. And if, and if you do know, then it's like a fun little, you know, everyone knows what you're talking about. Exactly. Y'all, I am so glad, okay? I got myself a Jew boo. That's a Jewish boo. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I'm living the dream. I'm going to be a Jewish wife, you know? And I am going to take his last name, okay? And that's not because I'm traditional and I'm like, I want you to know I belong to him. No, 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 no. I'm taking his last name because when I do, I will be Naomi Beckerman. That is the Jewiest. I'm like loving it. I'm living for the first 10 seconds of meeting someone, you know, and then being like, you're Mrs. Beckerman? And I'm like, shalom. <laughs> I'm owning it. Are you a Jubu, Matt Wilson? Yes, yes, I am. I am a Jubu. I love it. I can see it. I can see it in your beard, you know? Yeah, I know. So yeah, you have you do talk you talk about where you are right now. You have jokes about being in your 30s versus being in your 20s, um, which I love. Uh, and I mean, how how do you think about that in terms of of your career and and being being in your 30s where you are right now? Like how are you navigating that? You just mean the constant fear that like I am aging with every single day and I may <laughs> not achieve my dreams. Okay, Matt. Yes, that's what I'm dealing with right now. 
<laughs> exactly. Well, and, you know, in terms of, of fame and sort of how you, you know, because I think this special um, is, an, is another step in that direction of, of fame and getting to be a bigger comic. Um, and you know, do you think about that in terms of how how famous you want to get, how, how big you want to get as a comedian and, um, and the career that you're, that you're sort of aiming for? Definitely. It's, it's interesting because I will say that the, the, the prospect of, of fame, if fame were to happen, I would be glad that it happened to me later. Right. Cause I know who I am and I can kind of separate the fact from the fiction. The one thing you, I wish of course, is that I was working at this level for longer earlier, you know, um, for instance, you know, I hit an age, you know, between being in the relationship, having my three animals, needing my Wellbutrin. It's like, do I want to go on the road for 40 dates in a row? No, Matt, I'm tie tie. But if you get that opportunity or that's, you know, you got to do it. headline theaters or whatever it is, then that's what you're doing, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, because sometimes I'm like, oh, I wish I had done all that when I was like in my 20s and I had all the energy in the world and it didn't matter where you slept. But of course, yeah, I would, I would seize the day in a second. But um, yeah, I hope I hope there's more to come. It's it's funny too because of course for I think actors in general, women especially, it can always be so um, not taboo, but it can be worrisome to say your age, right? Because you're trying to constantly create the illusion that you're younger than you are. And yet, for me, I think I've kind of built up this voice as an old lady in a younger body and so <laughs> yeah. i just have to go with it um yeah i know you, you've talked uh, somewhere about how you you always felt like you were uh wanting to be an adult or you've always wanted to be an adult from when you were you were a kid right yeah oh god i love it i love <laughs> it i always wanted that i mean i remember one time we were at in school there was like health class and this woman came in who had been uh, she was like an alcoholic, but she was clean now. And she was there to talk to us, you know, about the dangers of alcohol. And she goes, and she said something and I was obsessed with her. She was like, they say that these are the best years of your life. They're not. These years <laughs> fucking suck. The best years of your life are your thirties. And I was like, okay, yes, yeah, I'm into that's, you, that's Molly. <laughs> um, do you feel like that influenced your, uh, persona as a comedian in terms of what you, you know, um, how you wanted to present yourself and as, as someone older from, were you, were you doing that from when you were even younger? Do you feel like you were presenting yourself as older? No, not necessarily, but I will say this. I, I'm not someone who puts a lot of stock in my looks, my physical appearance. I really was like, I'm not a cute girl comedian, so I'm not going to play that game. Like, in whatever that game is, it was just like, I guess I kind of was like, I'm not trying to be physically attractive to the audience, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, but is that, was that, a, is that a hard thing to not care about? Well, whenever people are staring at you, you wonder, is there something on my face? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> when people are looking at you, it's like, I, I obviously, like, wear a nice top and, you know what I mean? Like, give a little makeup, but... You know, when I think about like Nikki Glazer, as you mentioned, Rachel Feinstein, women who are, you know, really beautiful and know it and carry that with them on stage, you know, and I was just never that I was just like, I'll put on a sensible pant. Yeah, I mean, when when Nikki was on this podcast, she said something like she would rather be hot than funny, which I, which, <laughs> which which kind of surprised me, but kind of goes with her uh, her persona, too. I mean, absolutely. And also, I think, you know, hot opens way more doors than funny. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, let's be real. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe as we've as we've progressed a little bit in society with comedy, you know, and, and even with age, like you were talking about, like, I don't think age is a barrier to 
being a successful comedian this right now, you know? Well, you know, Leslie Jones is my idol. You know what I mean? She's a great example. I mean, yeah, but, you know, so many people you think about Wanda Sykes, um, you know, people who are huge comics, um, you know, who are older. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely hope to be in that upper echelon. I think it's just interesting because, you know, I have gotten messages and um, DMs and stuff where people are like, do you have any more comedy? You know, like, because I see the half hour and I'm like, yeah, babe. Yeah, there's more. Hit up the Google. There's more (laughs) where that came from, (laughs) you know? Yeah. and so that's, it's really interesting to, you know, when people say, it's like, where did you come from? It's like, honey, I've been sitting here waiting for you. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk a bit about where you did come from. So you were uh, born and raised in, in New York, right? Yes, now, you're, now you live in LA, but what, going back to New York, I mean, um, what was the, what was your relationship to, to comedy growing up and, and when did you first start getting into this world? Yeah. So I definitely am not someone who would call themselves a comedy nerd. I think like so many comics, you know, who are like, I grew up listening to albums and, you know, watching stuff. That was not me at all. I wanted to be an actor. And that's what I wanted from that time. I was a very small child. And I always say that as a child of the 80s and 90s, there were so many black TV shows back then that I was like, I was like, I want to be on that. You know, like I was like a different world, please. Um, So that's what I wanted. But I did always watch stuff. um, For instance, Shows that were kind of formative to me. It was like Talk Soup. I remember that show. And Aisha Tyler was hosting at one point. And I was like, oh, this is fun. And she's funny. And then I would watch Chris Rock specials with my mom. Like, I feel, because I feel like his first one came out in the 90s, like maybe 95 Mm. or 96. Yeah, something like that. And I was a teenager and he was talking about stuff. And like, I could sit with my mom and watch it. And she was like cracking up. And I never really saw her laugh like that. And I was like, oh, Oh, this man has a power and like the way he is doing this, you know, and how that I was like, oh God, this is really cool. And then it wasn't until I got to college, I went to school in Connecticut and Yeah, you went to Wesleyan, right? Yes, indeed. Wesleyan. I, know, University. We're, I think we're we're like exactly the same age. And I uh I have a lot of friends who went to Wesleyan at the same time. We don't need to play that game right now, <laughs> but uh <laughs> um, but yeah, that you started doing some sort of comedy there, right? Improv. So I started out doing improv. The group is called Gag Reflex. I just got an oh. email. We're tur- <laughs> for our 30th anniversary show. Oh my God. So wow. very robust alumni group. And and what we would do though was the what was it called? Armando, maybe? Basically, you would get a word, someone would do a monologue, and then you do scenes off the monologue. And I love the monologue part. Yeah. Like that was that your, that was, was your jam. That was my jam. And so that was kind of the first thing that got my brain going. And then I think I did I tried it. We did like a stand-up show, maybe sophomore year, and just like little bits and pieces. And then after college, I worked as an actor with the National Theater of the Deaf, which was in Connecticut. And that was for a year. And then after that, I came back to New York and that's when I was like, okay, I'm going to try some improv. Okay. I'm going to try a little stand up, and, you know, do little bar shows. I think I did stand up for the first time in 2007 and just sort of like, and because, and it wasn't like I was a big open micer. It was because I was from New York and I had a lot of friends who lived there. People would put me up on bar shows because I would bring an audience. Mm-hmm. You know what yeah. I mean? Like that's what's I, most important, right? Exactly. <laughs> I would just like show up like seven friends and I'd be like, I'm going to do comedy. Come on. You know, back again, when you're young and full of Mm. life (laughs) and you'll sit through eight other people to watch your friend talk for seven minutes. 
bless. And so that's kind of, that's where it started for me, you know, bits and pieces. I still never knew. I had no idea how you made it a life, a living, a professional. And I remember talking to various comics being like, what should I do? And it was just like, they were like, what you doing? You just keep doing it. Like there's no magic to yeah. it. <laughs> I think nowadays, if I were to meet somebody, I might have more specific advice, but I think that's because the game has changed. Who were some of those people that you were either, you know, coming up with at the time or who gave you advice at that at that time when you were first starting? Yeah, Baron Vaughn, who is hysterical, Michelle Buteau, Carolyn Castiglia, who's in New York. Those I just like off the top of my head, like those are three people who I would really talk to a lot because I met out there and was like, what is this? How do we do this? What's happening? And certainly as I progressed, I still talked to people like Michelle and Aparna Nonchurla because Aparna and I are close in age, but she's like, I, I want to think like, let's say if we're in school, she's like two years ahead of me, right? Like in terms of the different things she's done. So I can always go to her and be like, okay, I, I'm about to do this. What was it like when you did it? And she'll, you know, always have an answer. Yeah. So I, and you, at some point you started getting into the, the writing world and was, what's the story behind the, the Broad City thing? Cause you, you ended up writing on that show, but you started not as a writer or what, what, what happened there? Yeah. So I was a writer's assistant, which is basically, you know, it's part administrative. You take notes in the room and I was, so at the time, so I had known Alana through the world of stand up. We were friends. I was like showing her my writing when I was working on a web series. And so when I got laid off from my job, I sent an email out, you know, to everybody where I was like, I don't have a job. I'm out here. Keep me in mind. So then when Broad... What, what was your job? What were you doing before that? I was an editor at an art magazine, American Artist Magazine, Watercolor Magazine. I was the editor. Watercolor was the quarterly. American Artist was the monthly. And, you know, I'm just out here interviewing fine artists, not knowing a damn thing about art. <laughs> bless. Bless. Um, and So you were, you, were, you were ready to move on from that? Absolutely. Well, no, I got laid off. Because the thing is, that was, because here's the thing, I, you know, I did not grow up as a person where it was like, just go pack a bag and follow your dream. My mom, literally at one point, I didn't have a job. I want to say I was maybe 24, maybe. And I was like, you know, in between something. And my mom legit said to me, I did not work as hard as I did for this to be your life. <laughs> well, man, you get yeah. it together. Yeah. You get it together. Yikes. <laughs> so I always had a, you know, I always had to have a day job, both kind of for my sanity and for my self-esteem. And so an American artist was a pretty chill job, especially once I got my own office with a door. Who knows what I was doing in there? <laughs> so it was like, Writing bits. <laughs> hello, writing bits, blogging. Like I used to do all that stuff. So it was an easy job to maintain other stuff. Yeah, it was like that's how I chill. started. I started blogging while at a different day job. And that's how I, that's what led to this somehow. <laughs> well, okay. Did you do this thing? Cause what I would do is I would write my blog post in a word doc. And so I started to like learn the HTML. So I'm up in there like putting the italics in the bowl. So that way, if you just walk by, you just saw you just a word doc. You can't really tell what's going on. Yeah. 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 And again, I'm already writing. I'm sure I wasn't even doing that. I'm sure I was just like straight up in the <laughs> blogger, Tumblr or whatever it was. So then do so you knew Alana and that kind of led to the, the yep, Broad City thing? To, yep. It led to the interview. And I remember she, her coming to me and being like, she's like, so we have this writer's assistant position. Like, I don't know. I don't know if it pays a lot, but I was like, girl, I'll take it. You know, I don't have a job. <laughs> and I didn't realize at the time how lucky I was to first find a writing job, like in the writer's room in New York City. 
in a narrative room, in a mostly female room, in a small room. Like you, know, those yeah. are all the things. And that, in a in a show that ended up being so iconic too. I mean, exactly. That's very fortunate. I know. I was like, that worked out. And so because they knew me, and I remember we did some show at UCB that first year when I was an assistant, and I did stand up, and I did a very good set. It was just one of those nights, you know what I mean? When I was killing it, and it was so important for me to do that because. As the writer's assistant, they don't know me, right? Because I don't talk, really, in the room. So it was so important for me. You're just, me. like, taking notes and stuff. and Yeah. Exactly. And so it was really important for me for them to see that I was good. And I think that, I, I think that definitely impacted them bringing me back in the second season. And then you were, you were brought back as a writer in the second yeah, season? Yeah, staff writer in second season and third season. Um, and then that was it. And do you remember sort of like the first thing that you actually contributed that got on the show or any any jokes or bits or scenes or anything that stands out from your from your time there? Um, oh, my God. There's something. So, like, there is a whole storyline where Alana's babysitting this little boy and Amy Ryan plays his mom. And he's like yes. a really like, uh, you know, high maintenance little boy. And that was very much drawn from my own experience. Oh, really? Babysitting my <laughs> high school history teacher's son. That's who funny. We love. We bless his heart. We love him. And I told her too. like, they both know. I was like, I was like, this is influenced by Isaac. This yeah. is him right here. <laughs> and that little boy who was just like, he is allergic to soy and he's a little grown up man. And he means <laughs> that was yeah that's great what did how was that you mentioned that it was you know a very female writer's room and maybe that's true for other ones you've been in too but was that how did it compare to all of you know i know you've been in a lot of other writers rooms after that how did that first experience compare to some of the other ones that you've been in well i will say because broad city was a you know here's what was special and different about it that i you know again didn't realize till after the fact that was a small room maybe seven of us total or maybe eight with me um Everybody was friends with each other. You know, they all knew each other. They went back from the UCB days. And you have the stars of the show running the room. So that impacts, you know, if you pitch something, they will literally be like, no, I don't want to do that. And not in a bad way, but it's like you're talking to the star as well as the showrunner. So it was and so it was also a very open room like we would tell a lot of personal stories again the way i'm telling you like the babysitting i like i came from some kid that i actually babysat so we would always use our real experiences for fodder or like you know you might tell a story to kind of get into the pitch and then when i got into other rooms like i remember when i worked on great news and i and that was like nbc sitcom you know they were all much more like traditional writers like la people and i got in there and did this whole freaking story about my mom <laughs> and like literally everyone was like okay <laughs> and i was like oh, okay we don't do that here we don't we're get doing, into we're, it okay. we're doing jokes yes we're doing jokes we were doing joke math that was a very like 30 rock inspired uh yeah joke show right yes yes but yeah and that was not my wheelhouse i discovered yeah it's a really funny show but it, it was, was it was hyster- like- I mean, it was hysterical everyone was so funny i just you know that ability to just like crank out joke after joke nonstop. I don't have the stamina. Yeah. Um, you, uh, I, 
I was very excited to see your name pop up at the end of uh, the new season of Search Party, um, which just came out. And I actually have already watched the entire season because I had the screeners and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm obsessed with that show and really love it. Um, so, yeah, you worked on the final season of that show. What was what was that experience like? Because that's such a unique show as well. I know. So I worked on four as well. So at least when I came into this oh, okay. last one, I knew what was up. But obviously we did this one over Zoom. So it was COVID times. Um but it did help that I knew a little bit already because what I think is can be tricky about a Zoom room, it's when you don't know people, right? Because you don't have that in-person like lunch chit chat and water cooler talk yeah, and all that kind just of stuff. Strangers in boxes. Exactly. <laughs> but luckily this helped. You know, what's good about Search Party is that Sarah, Violet and Charles really have an idea of what they want before the room even starts. So they're like, we want to kind of play in this area. And then, so at least we kind of come in there being like, okay, this, these are the parameters. And um, without giving it away, you know, season five was wild. And it was <laughs> like, and I, and I remember when they sent us the document, I was like, what? All right, let's figure out how we're going to get here. Let's yeah, I liked out. it. Yeah, we won't spoil it, but there, I mean, there's like a little bit of Nexium kind of stuff in there. There's a little mm-hmm. bit of uh, pandemic oh. almost stuff in there. It's, there's a lot. Yeah. Well, we love cults. You know what I mean? Like, that was so fun because what they'll do to, because they're like, okay, like, have you guys seen this or seen this? You know, so we're all kind of like talking about the same kind of stuff. And, you know, I was very into that Heaven's Gate doc that came out mm. last year. Yes. And I was like, okay, we need them dressing Heaven's Gate style. Yeah. We need the haircut. <laughs> so like I had a lot, like we were really into all that stuff. So um, that was fun. I also, I quite enjoyed your your cameo, which we could just spoil a little bit. With, Thank uh, you. With uh, Whitmer Thomas and Joe Para, the three of you is, is great. What a ragtag team the three of us are. <laughs> Can you imagine it? Like when we were on set, it was very much like Joe and Whitmer will be having lunch and I'm going to be over here in a corner. <laughs> really? And I was like, this makes sense. <laughs> no, no. I'm t- like, obviously they were super nice, but it's like, they're so, you know, they're, they're like on the same wavelength, but it was so fun. And I, they were so nice to do that. And it actually just worked out because I was in New York preparing for the half hour. So I recorded that. I remember it was like July 30th or July 31st, like whatever one day I was there and I was able to do that. And then go, you know, and then shoot the half hour the next week. But yeah, that was fun. And Aparna is so funny in that too. Yeah. Well, we live for her. We live yeah. for Aparna and Untrela. Yeah. Oh, fabulous. Coming up, Naomi talks more about the early days of her comedy career, including the bold public stance she took on Saturday Night Live's lack of black female cast members. Does she ever regret possibly burning that bridge? Find out after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you know when Crystal Pepsi was discontinued? What was in Al Capone's vault? Or which famous meteorologist is Lenny Kravitz's second cousin? If not, then you haven't spent enough time on Wikipedia. But that's okay, because you can learn it all on the new podcast, WikiHole, from Smartless Media. Discover the craziest rabbit holes on Wikipedia with host and friend of the last laugh, 
Darcy Carden, and her favorite comedian friends as they bring the cyber frontier directly to your tympanic membrane. And if you listen to WikiHole, you will learn that's the sciencey term for eardrum. WikiHole is a hyperlink roller coaster, starting out on one Wikipedia page and then going from link to link to link to link, careening through trivia, oddities, and unexpected connections until everyone wonders, how the hell did we get here? Follow WikiHole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to WikiHole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. In addition to Naomi Ekparrigan, we have talked to so many of the comedians who've been part of Netflix's The Stand-Up Series, including Nikki Glaser, Nate Bargatze, Fortune Feimster, Dion Cole, and more. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to those episodes and everything else from our free archive, and you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Naomi Ek Paragon. This was a recent TV appearance, but I I wanted to ask about one of your earliest TV appearances, I believe, was on Totally Biased with W. Kamau Bell, which I I quite enjoyed um, and just went back and rewatched that. And it's definitely you. You it was kind of a, a risky a bit that you did then about uh, <laughs> SNL and and the the lack of uh, black women on SNL, which was a, you know obviously a hot topic at that time um, when you were doing it. Um, how did that come about, and and why did you want to use that platform to to speak out on that? Um, it really, I you know I it was so funny because I do remember that happened at a time when like I wasn't working and I didn't know what I was going to do and I was feeling like so lost. And then at the time Guy Branham was working on that show, you know, cause he had come out had a lot of like hilarious San Francisco people and Guy, and I remember Guy reached out and was like, Hey, you know, I thought of you for this, for this bit. Like, would you, you know, do you have thoughts on this topic? And literally I was like, Oh, absolutely. And then we just started talking and then he was like, okay, come in here. Let me, let's like write this down and figure it out. SNL is a show about pop culture. And who runs the pop culture world? Girls, black girls, like Beyonce, Michelle Obama, and Oprah. And Malia Obama is in high school now. You know she gonna be getting in trouble. (laughs) Who's gonna play Malia when she starts ghost riding the whip on Air Force One? (laughs) And if you wanna do a sketch about her and Sasha, you need two black women on the stage at once. (laughs) I know that probably violates some kind of 30 Rock rule, but if you can put a dick in a box and three Jews on a boat, you can put two black women on SNL. (laughs) And I think for me it was, you know, I did have a moment when I thought it, but I was like, I'm not going to be on SNL. Like that wasn't something that I was like trying to keep the door open for anyway. I don't do impressions or voices or (laughs) anything. There's a lot of stand-ups on that show, you know, don't necessarily do that, but but well, you, that's true. But I also, again, you think I'm trying to work till three in the morning? <laughs> yeah. Like, absolutely yeah, no, not. I mean, it was, I was notable when in that piece, you kind of say, because the whole thing was about how Keenan Thompson made this comment about how there were no no uh, black, black women, women who, who, were ready. who were ready. And you say in the piece, you say, I'm not ready. But then you you cut to some people who you think, you know, were, including uh, Amber Ruffins in there and some other people. Hello. Um, yeah. Um, but so you really, you didn't feel like it wasn't even something that was sort of on your radar as a possibility, do you think, at the time? Is that why you felt 
comfortable because I I would think that a lot of people would not want to I burn that bridge potentially. I know. I don't care. I don't <laughs> care. <laughs> but I will say it's funny because once the one time I went to see SNL, Sashir Sashir was in it and it was like my birthday, so I was like, so uh, we went and we met her backstage and I saw Keenan in the hallway and I had this moment where I was like, oh no, what if Keenan recognizes me from what I yelled about him on FX? And then I was like, I don't think Keenan remembers. Yeah, I mean, I loved that show, but it did not have a ton of viewers. The uh, I know Kamau show, but it was it was great and um, yeah, I mean, it reminded me also of uh, you know that's the same platform that Hari uh, Kondabolu did his whole thing about The Simpsons. So it seemed like that show was willing to take swings at some of the big comedy, uh, iconic yep. comedy uh, yeah, institutions. institutions. Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, it's not. I mean, I definitely. You know, I did have a moment where it's like, okay, do I want to say this? But it's like, because here's my other thing about stuff like that. If it is funny and I am telling no lies, then I'm okay with it. You see what I'm saying? Like. If I'm just saying for a fact, like you don't have these people and these are people who are out here, you can't really argue with that. No, like you that's can't. not like that's not a hot take, really. It's not a, you know, a contrary stance. So that was the other thing. And that's how I feel about a lot of stuff when it comes to saying things that could get you in hot water, so to speak. Yeah. You don't worry about it if as long as it's funny or as long as it's true or yeah, as long as it's, it's funny and accurate, you know, and who am I and who's the butt of the joke, you know, I because I definitely I mean, it's, you know, that was one of the things I thought of in putting together the Netflix half hour. Right. If this stuff is going to be all over the world, people can see it, you know, for forever, anywhere. You know, I really did try to make sure I was like, is this how I want to say this? And is this the best way to say it? And, you know. I mean, I was I was serious about stuff. Like I ran I ran some material by some friends of mine who were social workers. I was literally like, "Does anything ping your ear?" Is there is sound? there an example of something that you either you know changed or rethought or or? Well, the joke. Okay, there are two little. So the so there's a joke in the set about uh, the our homeless neighbor and how he doesn't think Andy and I are a couple. And then I'm all like, "See, if you would listen to your black girlfriend, you wouldn't be homeless." And then I kind of <laughs> talk about and so and so I was like, okay. We are in a time where people are hyper um, attuned to, um, oh God, I've lost my train of thought, but like words, but like people are hyper attuned to, you know, punching down and saying inappropriate things, demonizing people, et cetera, et cetera. And so it was really important to me. I was like, I need to make sure I am making it clear that I am not knocking him as a homeless person. That that's, that that's not why it's that's not the punchline or that's not yeah exactly that's just who he is and the fact that he is and like and and the extent to which it's like so that even if someone who doesn't know me hears it i need to make sure that they're still hearing it the way i want them to hear it right because of course people who know me like you know you get it and you hear it in good faith so to speak but if you're just catching me you know flipping through channels and it's like who does bitch who's talking shit about homeless people you know what i mean and you're like so i had to make sure that or something very tiny but that i thought of is like when i'm doing this whole thing about white boys and i talk about you know i'm afraid of white boys um and i just said like most white men were once white boys and for instance just using the word most was something for me where i was like let's be inclusive of, inclusive of people who may have transitioned in their lives and that was literally just something that like 
I don't think that was the in the first iteration of that joke. Whenever I first said it, I didn't think about it. Because you could say all. all white men. A lot of people would say all white men were once white boys. Yeah, that- white men were once white boys. Like just period. And it was like, let's just put that there. And again, it ain't got to be a whole production. We ain't telegraphing it. There's not a bit about being trans, but just like accounting for a an experience or a group of people. That was something like that. Like those are two examples of things where I was like, okay mind your p's and q's and in both of those instances it doesn't mess it doesn't influence the integrity of the joke in any way i mean talking to you about this you can tell how much you care about it how much you think about it um you know it does feel like there are definitely two camps in comedy right now one that cares about this stuff and one that almost purposefully doesn't um (laughs) Uh or is actively you know rejecting the idea of being thoughtful about this stuff um I don't know how how do you how do you think about that and your your role in 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 that world and and do you see that divide in just in your life as a comedian? I mean, I definitely see the divide and we know people on both sides of that. Um and I think for me cuz it comes down to this and I'll be honest about it. I want to be liked by as many people as possible. Matt, I'm needy. Okay, <laughs> fill in the emptiness, babe. So and and I'm honest about that. So like if I'm doing a joke and again, what am I saying? It's like I start with the joke and it's like, okay, is there anything in this that is hurtful inadvertently? You see what I'm saying? Like it's just like take that beat. If I'm trying to like drag somebody, I'm a drag. But if it's something where it's like, oh, in using this word choice, like for something so silly. But, you know, I bring my purse on stage a lot and I decided to do that in taping. And sometimes like I was like, I would have my purse. And I would, you know, put it down. And I'd be like, I'm like, and then especially in LA, because I'd be like, where are my black people at? Like, you know what I mean? Like, just to be like, is it a safe space? And then for some reason, like when I was going to do it for the Netflix thing, I was like, what if people think, if I put my purse, I'm like, I got to hold my purse. Where are my black people at? Are they going to think that I'm implying that the black people will take my purse? <laughs> yeah, you don't want that. And it's like, who, again, I wouldn't think that. But why even put it on the mm-hmm. table, mm-hmm. give the internet the fodder, because that's not what it's about. Yeah, yeah. So that's how I am. It's like, and again, it's like, can I can I put in an extra layer of thought and not only, okay, possibly improve the joke. I mean, of course, best best case scenario, but also just like keep the joke as it stands. Does it hurt the joke to add in a qualifier? You know? Um and if it doesn't hurt the joke, it's like, yeah, I ain't up here trying to start fights with nobody. I don't need you yelling at me on the internet. I'm stressed out enough, man. I mean, yeah, it, it does occur to me that when you were in the middle of this, you know, um, putting, getting the Netflix thing, taping it, it was the time when Netflix was a little bit under fire uh, for the Chappelle stuff, which we don't need to get into too much because I feel oh, like yeah, every- Oh, yeah, you had a lot of Chappelle talk about in your previous episode. <laughs> and I said, don't he make me talk about yeah. Chappelle. But the Netflix thing, I mean, you know, it's like you there, it's, it's the same company that you, that you guys are working for. And it's, I mean, did that, did you think about that at all? Or did you worry about that at all? Well, so this is the thing. So, so initially, like they had said, oh, the half hours are going to come out in October. And so at the time that was exciting, of course, because it was like, okay, just two months after I've recorded it, it'll feel pretty fresh. Um, I'll have something going on at a time when nothing's going on, you know? And then Chappelle's thing came out and there was that focus on that. And then, and then I remember finding like, I was so excited about being on this platform and now I feel a little less excited. And cause, because when something comes out, that's like, whatever, skip, cut. Then, <laughs> then I remember 
you know, so a couple of friends pointed out, they were like, it might actually be good if it doesn't come out in October because you'll be overshadowed by all the conversation going around, going on around this one special. And so then I was like, yeah, you're right. You're right. Because yeah, you hate to be lumped in, but at the same time, you're on the same platform as somebody, but it's like, I'm still going to want to reach the biggest audience possible. It doesn't, It in the end, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really matter. It's that's, you know, it's his special, even though as much attention as it got, it's one of a million things on Netflix. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was interesting to just see how, how the company dealt with that. I would say maybe not as well as some of us would have liked, but <laughs> yeah, it's funny. It's interesting. It's like, you know, I will say, you know, when we talk about when you mentioned sort of like, you know, fame or the growth of a career, I think the one thing I worry about is being able to stay funny as I get in. If I were to evolve in my career to a place where I'm not able to engage in the world naturally, you see what I'm saying? Like when you get to a point where you're so famous, you can't walk down the street, you can't go to the mall, you can't go to the movies, you know, that really does impact your ability to put together a good set. Cause you're not having the same experiences. Yeah. I think, and you lose your, yeah, you lose your perspective or you lose your, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think that's, that's probably something a lot of comedians have dealt with is, is how do you, how do you keep doing this when you get so big? I mean, that's like, I mean, it's kind of a old example, but, uh, you know, Steve Martin famously quit comedy cause he was like, got too famous. <laughs> I remember. Yep. Yep. He was like, I cannot continue this and I don't know what yeah. you want from well, me. Even even <laughs> Chappelle ending Chappelle's show was kind of because of that too, right? Because it was like he was people are taking my stuff the wrong way. Now we've got to a different place on that. But <laughs> <laughs> that's the journey. That's yeah, the journey of a is. man, you know? <laughs> so yeah, I mean search party's out now. This special is out now. What are you what what's next for you? What are you uh what are you wanting to do? What are you dreaming of? I am so I we just started writing season three of Mythic Quest, which is oh, on Apple right, yeah. TV. Yeah. And uh so and I'll be on that some more. So that I'm excited for that. And I'm just yeah, trying to write some projects, ideally for myself, working on some stuff. And yeah, we just write, you just have to see. It's interesting when you do these things like trying to find that balance between, you know, like caring about it, being invested, putting in the work, but also being completely divorced from the outcome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's hard. I'm just, I don't, I couldn't it, do that. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, I'm riding the line. I'm riding the line where I'm like, okay, I have these ideas and the things I have to like focus on the idea because the moment I jump ahead to like, they're not even going to make it or what if they don't like it? I cannot get it done, you know? And so I have to like, literally just be like, Okay, what's the part that's exciting? Just think about that. Just think about that. Don't think about anything else. Just start typing. Don't start editorializing. And then I can get into it. Yeah, that's hard. Um, so what I want to do now is our uh, segment called The First Laugh, where we're going to talk about some some firsts from your life and, and career. And you can tell some some quick stories, hopefully. So do you remember going all the way back, the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard as a kid? Do you remember something that you saw very early on that, that you really connected to? Oh, Lord. I don't know. I loved all TV. I was addicted. <laughs> I remember thinking Martin was the funniest thing I had ever seen. I remember thinking Martin was hysterical because that man was wild. And I don't even mean just, I don't even mean Sinead. I mean, when actual Martin was in his <laughs> house, like a whirling dervish of, of a human. And I remember he made a joke about how he didn't want to go to Gina's work party because every time he went to a work party, he would be in stuck in the corner talking to some white guy named Bob who would go, <laughs> I just saw Roots, Martin. I didn't know. I didn't know. 
And I That's remember great. thinking that was the funniest thing ever. <laughs> uh, do you remember the first time that you knew you were funny? Ooh, good question. It would have been in eighth grade. I don't know specifically what it was, but I, you know, I had started private school in sixth grade and it was like me and a bunch of rich white kids. And I was like really shy at first. And then in, and then like by eighth grade, I, I started to get come, you know, I had a little personality. I wasn't so scared. And I used to just like tell jokes and stuff in class. And like, to the point where, you know, teachers were like, could you shut up? And I was like, <laughs> no, this is my time. And I remember just thinking like, Oh, they like me when I'm being funny. Yeah. We kind of touched on this, but do you, what do you remember? I want to hear more about the first time you performed stand up on stage. So, where were you? How did it go? What was the, what did it feel like? Um, all of that. Do we want college? Like the first time in college, or you mean like real stand up, like in a club? And, well, I don't know. What do, you, what do you consider? What do you consider the first time for real? I would say the college show because it was, I have put together a set. And I'm going to tell us it wasn't just and like it was a show and people paid money for it. It was a fundraiser. So we were really like, we're going to be good. And um, and I remember talking about my then boyfriend at the time who was in the audience meeting his parents for the first time in Concord, Massachusetts. And just like talking about, you know, being around being around the whites in <laughs> Massachusetts and uh, just, yeah, like getting laughs and stuff and people you know, that kind of response that was like, oh, I might be good at this just talking part. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you remember the first joke that you had that really worked, that really connected with an audience that you could kind of go back to at, at your at your shows that, that was one of your, your best jokes? Okay. Best meaning it would work. Yes. And it was <laughs> about, again, like my early days about like hooking up with some, with this guy and he, and I so I was like he tried to put his p in my v without a c, <laughs> and then I was like, I was like trying to give me the herp the hiv bring down my property value, <laughs> and then I was like, and then I do a b and they'd be like, well, he he was a white man so I guess technically he was gentrifying my vagina. <laughs> then I would look down and I'd say, they're building a Jamba Juice down there right now. <laughs> That's great. And that was. I tried and true. I still got you. Yeah, I still got still you funny, like yeah. 11 years later. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, on the flip side, do you have a, do you have a worst bomb story that you, that haunts you? Oh my God. Yes. So you mean like a joke or just a show where it was a nightmare? I guess a show that, that, that was a, that, yeah, that really so, didn't go well. <laughs> yeah. Totes. One time I did a show and it was a, it was like a breast cancer awareness foundation. It was some, you know, um, something to raise funds for this organization. And I'm up there and like, it's like older. We're in a hotel ballroom. It was like not the space for comedy. And I did not know how to work with that at the time. You know, I was probably like three, four years in. And then I started to do this bit about how I don't like children and how I was, or like when my friends have kids, I start treating them like they have a terminal illness. And I start the bit and then I realize I am in a room with several breast cancer survivors. (laughs) And I was like, I don't, think this will be funny to them like me being like talking to someone with a kid being like you're so brave i wish i could be strong like you and i didn't know how to get out of it either right like (laughs) so i'm like okay i start i was like get to like what might be the first like laugh and then just like pivot pivot and like (sighs) in the hotel ballroom here's the thing you can see the entire audience you know that lighting is not for performance that is a (laughs) you can see their faces 
Yeah, it was hard. It was hard. <laughs> did you get out of it or did it just kind of uh, end poorly? Yeah, I pivoted to something and then just like got off stage. Like, you know, if it was, if it was like, if it was 12 to 15, I was off in 12, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, you also mentioned this, but your, your late night stand-up debut, I always love hearing about these, you know, the first, first time on late night TV was, I believe on Seth Meyers, right? Yes. Yes. What do you remember about that experience and, and how it went and, and what, what that that meant for you? Yeah. So that was another one where, for instance, so I just recorded the Comedy Central half hour in June of 2016 and that was September, 2016. So it was literally, I was like, well, what are my five good minutes? I don't know if I have five good minutes left. I've just given them all to Comedy Central. So it was like a, there was a bit where I was like, uh, it was a joke that I probably just started doing a week or so before. And I um, just had to, I put it in the set. I put it in the set about a food journal and about how I would look at the food journal like the doctor wanted me to keep a food journal for two weeks and then I would get like a day and a half into the journal and I would just be like, I see. <laughs> I see what the problem is here, you know? And it was just like, I think that works. I think that works. I was so nervous. I have never been more. I find short sets to be so much more stressful. Yeah. Well, it goes by so fast, right? Yeah. And you got to like, how do I get them on board, introduce myself and be hysterical? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I loved the the moment where you kind of called out uh, Seth um, <laughs> and got, got him I to react. I thought about it. I like wanted, because I had, when I was doing it, I was like, oh, I want to do that. And I was like, but I don't know. I was like, can I? Am I allowed? Whatever. And I just said, do it. I said, shoot your fucking shot. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You out here. <laughs> they'll cut it or make you do it over if they hate it. So <laughs> I feel like it's like Donald Trump don't let the racists out. You know what I'm saying? He gonna, he gonna let them out their hidey holes. Like little bigoted meerkats, you know? I'm serious. It's happening now. I'm on edge. You know what I'm saying? If you are lighter than a paper bag, I am checking you. Okay? Yes. You too, Seth Myers, okay? Yes. Honey, just because you got dimples don't mean you ain't on a list, you know? I'm serious, like everyone's a suspect, you know? And especially I find myself most on edge when I'm in Brooklyn because there's this breed of hipster, okay? This hipster dude. You know this guy, okay? He's got the sleeve tattoos, the trucker cap, the beard to hide his identity, you know? And you know, if I'm walking down a street by myself late at night, I'm looking at him with side eye like, um, are you a white supremacist or do you brine your own pickles? You know? And you won't know till it's too late. <laughs> Thank you, guys. I'm Naomi Kerrigan. Do you remember the first time meeting a, a comedy hero, a story about um, the first time that you met someone who you really looked up to in the comedy world um, that sticks out in your memory? I met Aisha Tyler at a Comic-Con like four years ago. And I mean, so she was hosting the panel and I was one of the comedians on the panel, right? So I'm like, I have got to be the funniest I have ever been so that Aisha Tyler will see me as a <laughs> colleague. Like I, was, like, I was dying because, again, she was one of the first comics I knew of from, you know, her talk soup days. And, like, I had her book. I remember seeing her, like, I have an autographed copy of her first book, okay? That's how far back my love for her goes. And so, and I remember, like, you know, we just said hi before. I didn't want to, I didn't want to come in hot. I had to show myself as a performer. Then afterwards, and she was like, you were so funny. And then I was like, 
Aisha, I am deceased. I'm going to wet my pants. I am upset. Like I, and then I just really kind of laid out. it on thick. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's great. Um, do you have a favorite Nancy Myers movie? Yes. And I think it would be, does she do because I said so? Let's do a quick hunt because that might that be one. one of my favorites. Let's Is that see. Her? Let's see if it's her. But does she write it? I need to know if she wrote it. Because that's no, she didn't write that one. So then it would have to be um it's complicated. That's my answer. That's too. just like a jam. Is it really <laughs> it's so good? And just Merrill Alec at the top of his game. That was really like, oh God, Topes Creams Beige. You yeah, know? Fantastic. Um finally, I like to ask comedians or give comedians a chance to shout out other comedians who are really making them laugh right now or other comedy or just anything that that is really making you laugh so what's the what's the last uh, piece of comedy or comedian or something that that really got you that really really made you laugh joe firestone's new special yes. on peacock good timing <laughs> Ooh, i loved it and joe is somebody who could just crack me up yeah. like she's so funny phone book. and she is so funny those people there's a woman in there an elderly woman whose name is bibby elvers yes yes and just the name bibby elvers that got you kills me <laughs> kills me and so i highly recommend well that's a great example of being able to do comedy for your uh you know as as long as as long as you can yeah. <laughs> oh my God. I hope to be a Bibby Elvers. Yeah. I hope to be 83 getting on a stage. <laughs> I can see it. I think you're going to do it. Thank you so much, Matt. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. This was really, really fun. Um, and yeah, I've been such a big fan of yours for a long time and I'm glad we got to do this and I'm excited to see, uh, see you get all these great opportunities. Um, it's really fantastic. Thank you, friend. So good to be here. You're the best. Thank you. Love your beard. Thank you. And hopefully I'll see you in the real world. Yes. Fantastic. All right. Okay. Thank you so much to Naomi Ekperigan for joining me on today's show. Her new half hour special is streaming now on Netflix as part of the stand up series. And you can check out her podcast, Couples Therapy, wherever you're listening to this podcast. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. <laughs>